You are listening to Cantus Firmus. Uh, I have uh, as a guest today uh, John A. D'Angelo III, the, uh, the gentleman who's behind the website antiwarwarvet.com. And um, I think from there I might, I might just actually just jump into questions because I, I suspect that people who, who hear that already know kind of what we're getting into and, and are curious about the, the background, this, this sort of interesting dichotomy of an anti-war war vet. So, so John, what is your background? Did, did you grow up in a military family or a Christian family? And, you know, did those two connect in any way? Hey, Cody. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so I did not grow up in a, in a Christian household. Uh, my grandmother, I grew up with a single mom and a grandma. And my grandmother was a kind of a rosary praying Catholic, but she stopped showing up to mass after my grandfather had left. Um, and it was a, pretty ardent military supporting family. Most of the men in my family were military, um, but it, it was not because of any Christian ethic. It was more of like that deontological life of service sort of thing. Everybody was making a pragmatic decision to join and thought it was sort of their duty. Um, and that's what motivated me at the time too. Gotcha. Would, 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 would the words I've heard like, you know, sort of the cult of the state, you know, where, where there's this kind of, you know, almost a reverence and a, or almost sort of a religious fervor for, you know, for country and for particularly the military, those people who, uh, you know, put, put, put it on the line, um, you know, risk their lives in order to support support their country and those sort of things. Was, was that would that be would, would the cult of the state be too too uh, too negative of a, a phrase to attach to kind of like what that experience was like for you or? Uh, I don't think they would appreciate that okay. uh, moniker, but I think that's probably more or less the case. Yeah. And, um, you know, after the paradigm shift I've had into into anarchism and into being a, a professing Christian, I definitely see more of that now. Um, <clears throat> but it, it, there wasn't so much a, an irreverence as, and I notice this a lot in a lot of the families that I know that are big military supporters. Um, it is really just sort of, sort of an outgrowth of patriotism. And, and again, that sort of duty based lifestyle that this is something that we have to do as Christian men or American men or, whatever, that we have to support the state and the military and we have to love the troops because they're supporting some freedom that nobody can really list. And I think that that was more or less my experience growing up. Got it. Got it. Um, and where did you grow up out of curiosity? I grew up in a, in a small suburban town called Wallingford in Connecticut, central Connecticut. Okay. Sounds nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so when you get a little bit older and you start thinking about joining the Marines and um, is it, is it real? is that just kind of an outgrowth of that sort of background that, that sort of, you know, lionizes or appreciates the, you know, those who are in the military or, or what, what's, what's behind the decision to join for you? Yeah. Um, it's funny. I, the summer before I enlisted, I enlisted in September of my, the, the following September after I graduated high school. And um, I was in that summer I spent in Chicago doing slam poetry, of all things, um, for Brave New Voices, which is like this national competition. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was kind of like not a lefty, but I definitely sort of started to lean that way because it was a very progressive scene. And, um, you know, I had the long hair and my uncle Glenn, who had come, who was a high ranking coastie at the time, had come home. And seeing that I, you know, was sort of misdirected and didn't really have any plans, he basically dragged me to the recruiter's office and told me to pick a door. And oh, I wow. just picked, I picked the Marines because no one in my family had done it yet. Wow. Okay. That's <laughs> that's pretty interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, 
when you when you say that he dragged you, was there uh, how much of it did you feel like was a decision that you were making? Was it just that he gave you that little push, or or was it like that you really didn't want to do it? Um, I I didn't really feel strongly either way. I was a lot of the decisions I made in my early life were sort of um, whimsical and just on a, on on a fly. Um, in that case, I didn't really have a strong idea of what I wanted to do. And I had done so poorly in high school that college wasn't an option. Mm -hmm. So it seemed to me to be the most sensible thing for my life, even though I didn't particularly want to do it. I didn't feel strongly against it. That's for sure. Yeah. Maybe it seemed like you had more career options than doing slam poetry. Yeah, exactly. I don't (laughs) think that was going to work out for my, uh, my bottom line. (laughs) Understand. So uh, where were you? De- so first of all, when was this and, and then where were you deployed and what did you do? Yeah, so I enlisted in 2009. I left in 2010 and I got home. I was a reservist. Uh, so I got home at the end of 2010. And then um, at the end of 2010, I got orders immediately to go back on uh, for active orders, which is like when a reservist gets deployed, they get put back in active duty for deployment. And I got those orders at the beginning of 2011. And I was in Afghanistan by September 2011, after a workup and everything. Oh, wow. Wow. So, uh, it, it, and, and what were you primarily doing when you were there? So, I was a truck driver, and um, I drove MRAPs, which are like the trucks that we are, uh, we get the privilege of seeing all of our police departments drive around in, and then uh, bigger trucks, which are called LVSs, which are big load-bearing trucks, sort of like a tractor trailer. And um, we drove those Primarily, so I was attached to Second Supply, uh, which is a company out of or a battalion out of um, North Carolina. And we were their truck company for the time being during deployment. And we were tasked with providing fuel security, um, which turned out to be a U.S. jobs program because the military didn't want to spend the money to send armored fuel trucks overseas. But that was the primary way that we moved fuel throughout the whole country. So instead of having armored trucks, which wouldn't leak, obviously, when they got shot, we would pay Afghans, local Afghans who owned regular fuel trucks, about $2,000 American to take the convoy with us. And we ostensibly provided security for them. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So did did you, if you don't mind me asking, did you run into combat yourself there or or did you manage to avoid avoid that? Yeah. uh, So our entire convoys... um, we, we all kind of saw it in varying degrees. Um, I was hit by a small IED in December of 2011, um, but it, it didn't really cause any harm. I was absolutely fine. Uh, but that was what my combat action ribbon was attached to. But we got shot at and um, we hit IEDs pretty regularly. Um, it really, it was more of a war of attrition. The Taliban knew that they weren't going to really cause much harm, if at all, to us. So what they were trying to do was Um, shoot the sides of these trucks that were not armored because the fuel costs about $97 a gallon, or at least that's what I had heard by the time it got loaded onto the trucks. And then you add in all the externalities for us as the guys that were providing security and the $2,000 for every Afghan driver. Uh, So it was really an expensive uh, undertaking for the military and something that the Taliban had appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, it seems that in, in these kinds of things where there's one side is very outmatched by the other, it's less about, um, you know, winning, winning the battle through conventional means and more about just, just making the other side totally discouraged. <laughs> is that, is that fair to say that they were just kind of just trying to lower your morale? Yeah. And, and even if it wasn't lowering morale, I mean, 
I think anybody who um, appreciated the U.S. military's position or the individual um, actor on the ground, our morale was probably fine. But mm. it, Osama bin Laden was pretty clear that his point in doing these sorts of things and trying to incite us into a war in the Middle East was not because they were going to defeat us in some prophetic end of the world scenario battle. They were trying to make us hemorrhage money. And that's precisely what they've been doing since 2003. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Okay. So, um, in, I, I'd be curious. I imagine that in a lot of situations like that, it becomes very personal. Um, but I, I know that I'm, I'm sure that there are also, you know, people who are on the ground who think of it as just as a job, you know, something you do. Um, and, and I wonder how, you know, you started to look at, um, Afghanistanis and, and Taliban and it just kind of, and, and did you separate in your mind the, you know, the locals from the combatants and it, anyway, just kind of, what was your, I guess, sort of psychological state as you're, as you're there? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I was 20. I turned 21 while I was over there. So I was young and I was not ideological at all. Um, I didn't really have much thought for the Afghans. I thought it was cool that I got to cruise around in some wild west scenario in an armored vehicle. It felt like, you know, playing a video game almost, you know, you're, you're more or less safe. Um, and the, the combatants or the enemy or whomever, however you want to label them, uh, the insurgency didn't really feel like they were a true threat. Um, however, the idea about separating the locals from the combatants, we learned fairly early on, even on pre-deployment, they would talk to us about how the Taliban would go into small villages and they would coax, uh, men of the family to, they would give them rifles and then give them money. Um, and I've never actually sourced any of this since, but I just remember hearing this in pre-deployment, uh, briefs and stuff. They would give these guys money and in return, they would, um, threaten them to fire at us or they would threaten their family. And so it, it was really messy. It's not like these guys were Taliban or even ideological. They weren't even really raising up arms against an occupying force. A lot of times they were doing it under the threat of violence on the other side. And, you know, that's pretty powerful to think about when you start to, you know, we, we would have these truck drivers with us in our convoys some of these missions took over two weeks. So we'd be out in the middle of nowhere with these guys. We get to know them a little bit, even if they don't speak English, you see their behaviors. Um, it's tough to not humanize them in situations like that and realize that they're in often untenable situations themselves. Yeah. Wow. I mean, as you're there and you're kind of looking at it from the ground, did it seem to you at the time that, that we were accomplishing our mission there or? Well, that's the, that's the funniest thing about all of this, right? Like, we never knew what a what the mission was, um, and even if any of us were to say that we thought it was anything, it would most likely be the safe haven myth that we had to make sure that we made Afghanistan secure from insurgencies ever allowing terrorists to occupy there again. We heard that over and over during pre-deployment, and even I'm sure it was bandied about while we were deployed, but. I think if you were to pull any of us on the ground at the time, it probably would have been a, the idea that we were getting revenge for 9-11. The bad guys were so wily and crafty that they had to be sought out in every Afghan nook and cranny, and that was our job, you know? Hmm. Wow. So at what point do you start to question either the efficacy or the morality of what you're doing? Or what, what we're doing, maybe, is a better way to say it? Hmm. Um. 
yeah, I, I think early on I started to, started to realize that because there wasn't exactly an end goal, we were more or less running in place at best. Um, but, you know, through a series of different events, you, know, you see people get hurt or um, one of our early missions, we had gotten an intelligence brief afterwards that we had hurt a bunch of innocent people, potentially killing a bunch of them. And uh, they had actually taken one of the weapons that we were allowed to use on our trucks called a Mark 19, which is an automatic grenade launcher. They had taken it from our company. We weren't allowed to use them anymore because we had um, apparently hurt a bunch of innocent people. I say we as our company, not me particularly. Um, but when you start to think about that and, and think about the human toll of what you're doing, it doesn't become a video game anymore. And you suddenly start to realize that there's other people on the end of this. And um, I think all of those things, the, the sort of silliness about the convoys and how much we were paying out to these Afghans um, and the human toll on the ground, it became hard not to question the efficacy of what we were doing. And it certainly wasn't hard to question the morality of it. Now, did, did, were these concerns that you expressed with um, people in your company and, and did they share share some of your concerns even if they didn't end up going quite where you went with it? Uh, I think, you know, the answers I'm giving you now are definitely after a lot of thought and reflection. Um, at the time, I just wasn't so comfortable celebrating this idea of killing bad guys and fighting for freedom. Um, but we definitely talked about, as a group, I think, we all sort of shared the idea that this was sort of a silly thing and a waste of time. I don't think we ever took that next step to say, are we really fighting for freedom or for the safety of others? Because when you come home and people see you in uniform, you're, you know, you're paraded about in different, uh, whether actual parades or even like events at bars and, and gatherings, people incessantly come up to you and thank you for your service. And, you know, thanks for keeping America safe or whatever. And those sorts of things really started to weigh on me, not because of anything I had particularly done, but because we were doing something closer to the opposite of that. And I couldn't help but think, if anything, we're making America objectively less safe. And I started to investigate, and that's when I kind of came to the conclusions I've come to. That's interesting. So, yeah, this is something I think about. You brought up this question of whether or not soldiers are actually fighting for our freedom. And it, it seems, um, I mean, it seems like on, on one level a perfectly valid question to ask, <laughs> um, an important one to ask, in fact, but it, 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 I think it comes off as, I mean, almost, uh, I don't know, rude or callous to, to, to ask that question, you know? And, and I think it's it, partly maybe just because of how we, um, we sort of make soldiers into saints a little bit, if you want to use that mm. language of the cult of the state. And so, you know, it becomes very uh, dicey because people put together the idea of these people who are making this tremendous sacrifice um, and, and often with very good intentions – with what's actually the outcome of what of what our policies are, and so I, I, I'd be interested in hearing, you know, it's something I, I struggle with a little bit because I don't want to come off as insensitive or, or, or like a cad, but um, I mean, <laughs> this whole question of are they fighting for our freedom and, and, and is that disrespectful to soldiers to really ask whether or not that 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 that, that has been the outcome? Uh, you know, I think it's totally uh, uh, an appropriate question. I also think. You know, especially as ANCAPs or libertarians on social media, you'll see a lot of guys with, with the police and the military. They're often really quick to sort of 
expect that they appreciate our position and therefore um, attack them on those grounds when oftentimes cops and the military, they're, they're not thinking in the same paradigm at all. And um, so I think for me, as someone who came from that world and, and works around these people all the time, I can sort of appreciate that they're not, you know, their intentions are not ill will towards others, but they're just completely, I think, cynical in a lot of ways. And it's important to ask those questions. And anybody who who is a, specifically a soldier in the military at all and prides themselves on having fought for freedom, they have to appreciate that that question comes with the freedom they fought for. And maybe that you didn't fight for freedom at all is a, is a thing that you should grapple with as a soldier um, or as a vet because there's, there's so much writing and scholarship on this. And I, I recommend antiwar.com every time I talk to a vet about this stuff. But there's no question that we're objectively less safe if the reasons that Osama bin Laden and the cast of characters that flew planes into 9-11, the towers on 9-11, were um, releasing their motivations truly, which was that we were starving the Iraqis and we had troops in Saudi Arabia. Uh, we've only expounded on that policy and, and you know, doubled, tripled, quadrupled down on it. Uh, you know, what we're doing in Yemen today, Iraq, um, our posture towards Iran, Libya, Syria, I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, all of those places are potential breeding grounds for future terrorists because of what we've done. And I think soldiers, the guys, the actors on the ground who are carrying out these sorts of policies, they should grapple with that. Um, and they should really be willing to ask themselves if maybe they were doing something closer to the opposite of fighting for freedom. Hmm. I appreciate what you said about, um, you know, one of the, if, if, if soldiers are fighting for our freedom, one of those freedoms is to ask the question <laughs> whether or not right. th th what they're actually fighting for, uh, uh, at least in the end anyway, the end result is for our freedom. Um, and I think the fact that it's a difficult and uncomfortable question is really what makes it important because, you know, freedom of speech is not supposed to be the freedom to, you know, talk about the weather. It's, it's the freedom to bring up difficult questions without having to worry about, um, you know, <laughs> being, being thrown in prison for it or, Right. Uh, you know, or, or, you know, be attacked for it. And so in that I, vein, if I could just, I mean, a lot of times we forget these guys, a lot of these guys suffered or had friends who died alongside them. I mean, it's mm -hmm. hard. That cognitive dissonance is often hard to overcome. It's not easy to say, you know, my buddy died in Fallujah. Therefore, this whole thing is a lie. It's something closer yeah. to the opposite that this has got to be just and right and noble because, you know, friend X died doing it. And if it's not, then did he die in vain? And that's not a question that most people want to ask. Um, and it's certainly not a question that politicians will ever raise. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a very good point, right? Because we we have we make this connection between what we do and what or what we think and who we are. Mm -hmm. And and it's yeah, it, it's very disturbing to think about someone that you care about dying for nothing. And it almost you see it as an insult to their memory that that, that might be the case. Yeah. Um. Wow. So at this point, you know, going back to the story where, where you are there and you're, you're questioning what's happening on the ground as far as just whether it's effective. At what point do you question whether it's it's right? Um, I don't know that I did any time. I mean, I'm sure I had inklings that I felt like this was wrong. Um, but it wasn't until I came home and I started. Uh, honestly, my first real introduction to libertarianism was uh, Tom Woods's podcast. And he's just such an eloquent speaker and he 
he really puts a suit and tie to these radical ideas. And I think I needed that at the time. I mean, I still listen to him daily, but um, to to hear this Harvard graduate and former professor talk about these really radical notions about foreign policy and introducing me to, to Scott Horton, um, those guys really started to help me shift from my beliefs more or less in what we were doing in Afghanistan to something now where I'm, I'm completely against all of our foreign policy. Uh, it, it, took, it took a nudge for sure from people with an, a developed ideology. Okay, so that's interesting. So there's maybe a couple of things happening here. One of them is you have some firsthand experience that makes you question the policy. And then you start looking at or listening to libertarian, and you mentioned ANCAP, which is uh, short for anarcho-capitalist. <laughs> and you, you mentioned being an anarchist earlier, too, so I'm sure that's going to come up in our conversation. But So you have experience, you have these sort of political views developing, uh, and then at some point, Christian faith comes into this. Mm. And w- what happens there? Yeah, so I met my wife at a bar of all places. Um, she was She grew up in a... Um, a Baptist home. Uh, she was in college in her senior year. I met her on her 21st birthday. And, uh, interestingly enough, it was sort of this intersection of my old life and my future life. Um, I had met her at a a military event. I was doing a toys for tots event of all things. And so I was in uniform. She, we were both intoxicated, not something we're proud of today, but, um, she had kind of not fallen away from her faith, but certainly wasn't, um, living up to to it and we together sort of rekindled that for her and i got saved i i was not a um a professing christian if anything i was uh like an agnostic atheist i sort of prided myself on being intellectually superior to bible thumpers and all this thing mm-hmm. um, i've been there i know what you mean <laughs> yeah and uh you know it's kind of amazing now to look back knowing all of these this incredible intellect that's been poured into christianity i'm i'm that's one of my more embarrassing views from the past. But um, yeah, so it sort of came to make sense. I, I got saved in uh, 2012 and um, I started you know, regularly going to church and consuming the word. And at the same time, I was starting to have these revelations about my politics. And, and um, it, it's kind of hard to decide which came first. I think clearly I was a Christian before I was a, an anarchist or a libertarian, but um, you know, I'm, I often wonder if, and I think that this is probably something a lot of anarchist Christians grapple with is, am I conforming my faith or am I conforming my politics to my faith? Mm. Um, and I, I believe I'm conforming my politics, but, uh, yeah, it was, it's sort of that denouement of all those different threads kind of coming together. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the whole politics and, and religion thing is, is a complicated matter just because we have these uh, paradigms today that that don't really exist in biblical times. <laughs> so it's difficult to try to figure out how to make those things connect. Um, you know, for me, um, you know, I, I, I'd written this book that was kind of the result of some research on what the Bible has to say about the relationship between um, uh, the state or, or political uh, kingdoms and, and these demonic powers. Mm. And, you know, where I sort of landed uh, thinking about those things and how the church was supposed to be sort of separate from these things, I, I haven't quite landed on something like a you know full-throated anarchism or anything like that, but but I, I have a maybe a deep suspicion of the state that 
unfortunately, a lot of Christians don't have. I mean, they, they do on some level. You know, if if the guy in office is the wrong political party, then then they're be, then they're very uh, <laughs> suspicious of statism and and uh, and all those things. But you know, otherwise, they think it's you know quite wonderful to have the church aligned with the state. Right. Um. But yeah, it's 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 becomes complicated to tease those things apart, though. Um. And and so you have part of this is your Christian views um, as they relate to war, but where, how, how is your Christian um, beliefs, how, how have they informed uh, your political views generally? So uh, would you have gone maybe somewhat of a different direction or be, have a, maybe put a different nuance on your, you know, anarchist perspectives if it weren't for your faith? Um, yeah, potentially, but I mean, there's so much secular political, conversation out there related to anarchism. Uh, I think I may have been able to get there anyway, but I remember reading Tolstoy's The Kingdom of God is Within Us. And that was really powerful for me because I had never heard, I mean, he, he's a lefty economically anyway, but um, he he really develops from the idea of the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Matthew 5, and he extends that directly to our lives and how that should tangibly look. And talks about, you know, we, we shouldn't have this, this idol of patriotism connected to our theology. Um, if, if Jesus paid the price for you and I, he also paid the price for the Eurasian, 1984 Eurasian nation outside of us. The others that we are so easy to paint as something other than human when we talk in political terms, um, you know. Christ did not make uh, any sort of motion towards the cross for just Central North America. You know, he did that for the world. He made that available for the world. And understanding that and understanding that there's a stark contrast between nationalism and a faith in Christ. I, I think that was really where I started to come down much further away from my Boy Scout patriotism that I had held for so long. Gotcha. Is there, um, apart from this kind of idea of the idol of the state, one thing that I think comes up a lot for, um, you know, libertarians and anarchists is this idea of coercion always being wrong. Does that connect with you at all for your, for your Christian beliefs? You know, I think that that might be, it certainly does, but I think that that might be an even stronger argument in just tangible terms so that you can make the point to even a secular audience that the state's only means to achieve anything is through coercion or the threat of violence. And um, clearly that's not something that is kosher with a Christian lifestyle, but, um, and, and ironically, so many politicians pay lip service to being Christians, but I guess that's another conversation. The, the point is, is that it's, it's not an acceptable or moral way to structure society. And there has to be a way for us as human beings to figure out a way to work voluntarily with one another and any sort of, you know, claims about egalitarianism or the, the leveling of the poor and the rich or the have nots and the haves has to be on voluntary grounds because otherwise the burden of proof has to lay on the egalitarian who's arguing for the redistribution of wealth or the, you know, the, limiting of one person's rights for the achievement of another. And I think that those points are much stronger um, to raise against the legitimacy of the state than anything necessarily Christian, because so many Christians have married 
their theology with some sort of nationalism. Yeah. What, 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 what I find maybe is the, one of the more persuasive things about libertarianism um, is this idea that, you know, we start to kind of get to this place where everything we want, uh, we want to see happen as, as a society, we, we, we have to initiate violence to get it. And on some level, I think everybody, most people would say, okay, there's some things that I, I understand. Like, okay, well, we're going to have to tax people for this or for that or the other thing. And taxation involves taking what someone else has earned and then, and then you know, taking it from them by force if necessary uh, and then punishing them if they don't give it up. Um, but, but most people would say, okay, yeah, that's not great, I guess. But, you know, there's this thing that we really need as a society. And, you know, that seems kind of persuasive, but then you sort of go, okay, but who gets to determine what we need and where do you stop it? You know, where does this thing stop? Because we keep multiplying these rights that people are supposed to have, not on the basis of just leaving them alone and letting them, you know, have their own life and and liberty, but like, okay, well, this person needs this, this person needs uh, healthcare, education or whatever. So then we, we start to take these things. And then you say, okay, um, where does this stop really ultimately? Because we can keep doing this basically forever. Um, right. And so maybe for me, although like I guess that I haven't really got into the, the anarchist camp, the that tension that I have of sort of going, okay, yeah, but wh- when does it stop? You know, wh- why is it that I think it might be okay for this in this situation, but not in this other situation? And how how can I really draw that line and uh, be consistent about it? But but that is the thing about the state that kind of makes it so scary is that it's it's this like beast that never never uh you know stops being hungry you know yeah and i think uh you know spooner talks about this uh, lysander spooner when when he's talking about the constitution and he had quite an interesting intellectual arc in his in his work and his productive years but you know he at the time that he wrote um no treason makes the argument that look you know, we can't say that we have this constitution. And this is at a time when the constitution's allowances were much closer to what we imagined it was supposed to be in the late 19th century than it is today. Um, but this is, you know, after the civil war had been fought and won. And he's arguing that we can't, we can't say that anyone has really given consent to this thing. And if we haven't all given consent to this, then how is it in any way legitimate? How is it a government by the people for the people if it's really just by a small contingent of people who then sold it to the rest of us. And it turned out now we can say this in 2019 ultimately sold us a bill of goods because if the constitution did not, um, if the constitution allowed for the government we have today, clearly it didn't do the thing that it was supposed to do, which is limit government. Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's, that's a fair point. Um, there, I, I know a lot of Christian libertarians who, don't go in for, you know, maybe full-throated pacifism, but they'll sort of say, okay, but at minimum, we shouldn't be um, initiating uh, violence, right? Are, are you one of those kind of uh, non-interventionists, uh, Christian libertarians, or more of a uh, pacifist Christian libertarian? <laughs> mm. Yeah, this is something I struggle with even now, um, particularly because of the arguments from Tolstoy, actually. Uh, the idea of non-resistance to evil that Christ calls us to um, certainly is compelling, but I just don't know that it's, it's completely practical. And, you know, when I think about pacifism, I often think that that's sort of the ideal that I should be striving for. Um, I'm certainly not violent in my everyday life, but, um, I wonder now I have a young son, I have a wife, my wife is, um, actually pregnant 
And I wonder now, you know, if I had to defend my home, I wouldn't question doing that. But I struggle with it now um, in this in the sort of freedom and peace that I enjoy at the moment, if that's necessarily the right thing. And then I think that maybe it's probably more directed towards your faith. If I were ever um, given the opportunity to martyrdom or, uh, you know, like those Egyptian Christians uh, with with um, the Islamic State, you know, they, they didn't resist, particularly because of their call to peaceful non-resistance from Christ, I, I believe. And I don't know that that means that we can't ever defend ourselves, rather that we can't defend ourselves to defend our faith. We can't use violence to defend the name of Jesus. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, well, it, it sort of sounds like you're, you're, you're maybe on a similar place with pacifism than I am with anarchism. <laughs> yeah. Where, where it's like, well, that sounds like a great place to go to, but I, I don't know if I'm quite ready to uh, to pull the trigger. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So uh, what are you doing for a living now? Uh, I work as a full-time emergency department nurse in a local hospital by me. Wow. So if I were uh, if I were a psychoanalyst, I might uh, I, I might wonder if, if there's any connection to uh, what you had done in the past in the Marines um, versus what you're doing now, whether whether there is a, a desire to move move past what 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 you've done before and, and do something maybe opposite <laughs> to that. Is that is that at all true or is it just something that happened to work out? I wish I could have said that I have a profound desire to heal because of things from my past. But no, I, I much like joining the Marines in the first place, me becoming a nurse <laughs> was sort of the series um, or the culmination of a series of decisions that revolved around advancing a career or whatever. I, I don't love being a nurse. Um, I was um, originally on an ambulance and I did that after I got home from Afghanistan for a lot of years. And then I didn't want to stay on the ambulance because it's sort of hard on your body and uh, you know, you're out in the rain all the time. You don't make a ton of money. So I got my nursing degree so that I can sort of ameliorate some of those issues. And uh, I've been doing it for about a year now. Not to say that it's not a great job and it's not something that I enjoy, um, but it's just not, it's not necessarily fulfilling for me. Gotcha. 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 And it, but it wasn't something your uncle dragged you into do. <laughs> he did not bring me into the, uh, the admissions office and force me to sign up. No. Okay. All right. Do you have a like a message for for Christians who see God and country as inextricably linked? Yeah, I would just say that uh, you know, as a as a libertarian, um, I, I have my tangible sort of political arguments, and I think that those have been developed by much smarter people than I am. Um, but as far as Christianity and patriotism, particularly, I think that we need to think about the ritualistic way that we especially as Americans exist with nationalism, this idea of pledging allegiance to flags and um, all of the kind of gross mysticism we pay towards the old glory. It can't touch the ground and it has to fly higher than every other flag, including, interestingly, uh, the Christian flag in many churches. Um, we need to really start sort of shifting our views on that to closer to the Asherah pole and golden calf and further from um, a tie to our homeland. I think it's very natural for people and appropriate for people to view and have kinship with the place that they're from. But I think as Christians, um, we need to remember that our, our kingdom is not of this world and we have an obligation to all people 
to spread the gospel and the good news of Christ, regardless of their ethnicity or their place of residence. Yeah, I agree. So does, does that have an impact on, uh, as you watch the news and you see all these debates about immigration and building walls, does, does that come into to how you think about that issue when that comes up? Yeah, I mean, that it's heartbreaking um, what's happening on our southern border. Um, I definitely think that it's a hard question and it's, it's not, I don't think, I don't think it's going to be one that's solved politically. That's for sure. Um, I think that if we had a more robust system of private property rights, it would be a non-issue. Immigration is really, um, sort of the, I think a, a natural outgrowth of how collectivized we view society in general, um, because immigration is fairly easy when you start to consider your own property. It's much more complicated when you think about things collectivized and part of the public domain or whatever. Um, so yeah, I would say for Christians, we, we should certainly be loving our literal and figurative neighbors, regardless of the political consequences. Um, certainly the practical results of something like a welfare state and on a, um, unabashed borders is something that should be grappled with. And I think it is being grappled with, but there's certainly no cause to ending the welfare state as we know it. And, um, you know, that's going to have to be something that plays itself out, I suppose. But for me personally, I, I just pray and, and hope for those people that they're safe. And I, I really do commend these people that are willing to make such a sacrifice to get to a place that's better. I, I can totally relate as a parent and as um, a husband to wanting to make those sacrifices or being willing to make those sacrifices. And I think that it's a, a difficult political situation and one I'm not glad I have to solve. Yeah. I, I'm always interested in uh, recommendations for, you know, further reading and stuff like that. You've mentioned uh, Listener Spooner and, and Leo Tolstoy and, and even uh, the, the Tom Woods podcast. Um, other than, well, actually, we'll get, in, we'll get into what you're doing that people can look into, but, but do you recommend other other resources as well for people who maybe are going down a path maybe toward just trying to figure out where they're going with some of these issues. Mm, yeah. One of the, one of the early convincing works that I read for anarchism was rollback. Now it doesn't actually make the message of anarchism clearly, if I remember correctly, but it really calls into question the legitimacy and the efficacy of pretty much every government program. And, um, Tom is such an incredible, Tom Woods, I'm sorry, is such an incredible writer. He, he does a really great job of sorting, sort of parsing a lot of those ideas out. Um, the other book, that, the most recent one, is um, the recent New Right book by Michael Malice, where he does explicitly argue for anarchism and develops it with an anarchist foundation, but talks about sort of the history and um, growth of the New Right in contemporary politics. And I think that that's a great source for recent books that could still make an impact for today and, and be talking about contemporary issues. Um, as far as foundational anarchist works, I think that Rothbard's a great place to start. The Anatomy of the State is digestible. You can get it on PDF on Mises.org. It's like 75 pages. And I think if you're sort of grappling or wrestling with the idea of the state as a legitimate organization or not, that's a great place to start. Yeah, I think I got that maybe for just a couple bucks on couple bucks on Kindle. Um, yeah, that's it's, it's a good one. Um, well, and and as far as 
resources from you. So you've got a website, uh, you're on social media a little bit. So if somebody wants to follow what you're doing or see what you're working on, where would they go? Yeah, so I publish um, all of my stuff after the fact at antiwarwarvet.com. That's my blog. I'm I'm trying to be a little bit more active now that I'm finishing up my bachelor program um, here in the fall. Um, And I've also published a lot of those pieces on antiwar.com or the Libertarian Institute. Um, I actually just submitted another work to Mises.org. So potentially I could get published there, which would be really exciting. Um, But I'm trying to write a little bit more actively just because it's something that I really enjoy doing. It's really fulfilling for me. And it's also something I think I have a few perspectives that are relatively unique um, as a nurse in emergency medicine, considering the whole healthcare debate, and then as a vet being uh, an ardent anti-war activist or advocate. Um, those are my two sort of beats, if I had to say. And um, so that your website is antiwarwarvet.com? Yep. And you can follow me with the same name, antiwarwarvet, on Twitter. I'm, I'm not super active on there, but uh, if I get some followers, maybe I'll, yeah. maybe I'll have to get back I think, to it. I think I found you on Instagram, but I think on Instagram you're just antiwarvet. Is that right? Uh, you know, let me... Because I'm not actually sure. I would hope that I was smarter than that. Nope, same name, anti-war war vet. Okay. Okay, I left out a war. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I, was, I must have read it too fast. Okay, anti-war war vet. You kept it consistent. All right, wow. So thank you, John, and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to be here for this conversation. I hope it is useful for, for listeners. Yeah, thanks so much, Cody. Take care. See you.